Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is your 125th video cast, 115th podcast for the week ending March 10th, 2022. Seems like we were just at 100, and now we're already 25% beyond that. A lot to cover today, a lot of uh, interesting things happening in the market. We're going to walk you through all of them, uh, and we've uh, we've got uh, relatively uh good points to share with you that I think are going to put a lot of you at ease. Um, I will say on a great point, um, I got emails today from two people in my circle that um, were uh, the same few people who emailed me literally um, on the day of or one day before or one day after the the exact pandemic lows telling me they were selling all their stocks uh and i had suggested to them that was the exact wrong thing to do the time to to buy things is when they're on clearance uh and long story short they missed the whole uh uptrend or at least 75 percent of it uh after taking the 35 percent loss uh, these are the same people that were emailing me today uh, about the market. So it tells me that the bottom should be near. And uh, it's not any point out at any of these particular people. It's a point out at the general fear in the market, which we covered in the article of the week and which we're going to cover today. So uh, for those of you who have been hoping for some relief, I think it's sooner rather than later. Uh, I could tell that from the general indicators, but when I got those emails, it was, it was kind of the whipped cream. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see. Let's walk through the facts. Uh, that's anecdotal, uh, but um, certainly been accurate historically. Um, okay. Uh, first off, a quick media stuff. I want to thank Charlotte Pessel, Debbie Osborne, Mark Sproul, and Aya uh, Omar for having me on The Money Show, uh, which has been around for 40 years, by the way. I didn't even know. Uh, and the history of this is really rich. Lou Rukeyser, Ray Dalio, um, Art Laffer, uh, all, all the major players have uh, spoken on this platform. So it was a real honor to be a part of this this week. And you can uh, watch it directly on themoneyshow.com or just watch the YouTube video here. We're going to cover some key points on that. As a matter of fact, I was thinking about not even doing a video cast this week and actually just putting this in its place because I think you'll, you'll get a, a, a tremendous amount of value. But we'll go through some of the highlights and if you have time on your own, you can go through that. Um, also want to thank Karina Huber for including me in her segment on CGTN. Uh, that, I enjoyed that. I uh, want to thank, uh, first off, Sagarika uh, Jazingani. Uh, she used to work at Reuters. Now she's over at Bloomberg. Thank you for putting me in your uh, article on Russia. This was last week, actually. I just saw it online today. Uh, and also Thagaraju uh, Adinarian uh, for putting me in their article. And they were basically saying that they had shut the Russian stock market. They said, what, what would happen if they opened it today? I said, well, uh, if they open it on the basis of a resolution, the immediate response would be down another 20 to 25 because people, when you take away their liquidity, the first thing they want when they get it back is liquidity. They think cash is the most important thing to have. Uh, uh, but then you'd see you know, an abrupt uh, rebound over time if it was on the basis of a resolution. And I, I think that still holds true. I think there's going to be opportunity there. You know, you, you look at some of these Russian oil companies and assets, et cetera, um, that are, you know, the index when they closed it, I think was down 90% or 80, somewhere between 82 and 90% last week. 
Uh, and you think two years out when, when this is resolved one way or another, uh, are those assets going to be 82 to 90% less productive? Absolutely not. Uh, even sanctioned to death, they'll be 50% as productive and you probably get a double or triple in some of these. The question is going to be, what are the government rules, right? So can you own it? How can you own it? Will they let you own it? If you owned it before, will they let you keep it? Uh, and what we found this week uh, is the fact that um, they could take anything at any time in any way that they want. So um, uh, I think there will be opportunities there, but I think it's, you know, it's going to be a minefield uh, of opportunities, uh, to say the least. So uh, thanks for including me in that. I want to thank Devik Jane and Anisha Sirkar for including me in their Reuters article on Friday. I was basically a uh, response to some economic data point that beat gives uh, Chair Powell the go ahead to move uh, with his 25 basis point cut next week. Everyone knows that market's expecting it. I also want to thank Bansari Kamdar for including me. And uh, this was with regard to the jobs report. The number was fantastic. Um, even manufacturing was twice as good as expected. Average hourly weekly hours ticked up, but the pay ticked down. Uh, wages per hour ticked down, which was positive from inflation. We'll look at some of the inflation data for, from today on the CPI, which contradicted that. But when we uh, actually parse the numbers, we'll see that it may not have been as bad as advertised. You know, all the headlines were worse in 40 years, yada, yada, uh, which is true. But let's see what was the root cause of that. Um, but the key point here, the key issue is that average hourly earnings, which is a relief for everyone worried about inflation. Uh, okay, so thanks for that. Uh, Charlie Munger quote today, the world is full of foolish gamblers. They will not do as well as the patient investors. We're going to talk about that today uh, in a few contexts. Uh, first, we're going to just go through a couple uh, questions of the week. We're, we're, we're going to try to run through these because we've got a lot of other stuff to cover that people want to focus on this week. Uh, first, thoughts on AD. This is from Matt Mitchell, a uh, good guy. I've spoken to him uh, on Zoom. Um, ADDYY at current levels, $99 as of this morning, uh, March 8th, nine times free cash flow seems like a bargain both in relation to itself historically and in relation to comps like Nike trading at 31 times, free cash flow, uh, Under Armour at 11 times, PUMSY at 40 times, has a strong global brand, produces consistent free cash flow for owners, strong financials. Uh, thanks and keep up the great work, Matt Mitchell. Yeah, Matt, I think it's okay here. Um, I looked at that and, um, you know, it's down partially because it's a brand in Russia and et cetera. But I think uh, generally it's probably okay at these levels. It's priced in a lot of bad news. Uh, Krister Johnson, keep up the good work. I'm a bear because I am Austrian school of economics. I think that's guaranteed. I've never met a, an optimistic Austrian school uh, um, uh, believer uh, and only believe in fundamental analysis. Okay, I read your recent submission on Zero Hedge. Uh, keep in mind the cynics on the site are mad because they've been waiting for the crash and are angry that the Fed has delayed it. I, they don't understand that there's too much money around and it will migrate from place to place. They have a fixed mindset. I appreciate your perspective and it helps me to understand macro factors that I hate but are necessary for a complete education on the factors at play. Keep up your resilience. Okay, so yeah, Zero Hedge, it, it's a great site. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's predominantly negative. It's a little bit funny, but they do also 
uh, republish a lot of bank research. So I, I check in from time to time to uh, make sure I'm not missing anything. And I, I sometimes repost our article of the week on there. And like the people on the website are uh, really interesting folks. I mean, if you want to have a fun night, you know, grab a couple beers and read the comments to all these articles. These people are uh, unbelievable. I'd like to like meet some of these people in person. I don't know if they come out of their caves or not, but uh, they're definitely entertaining to say the least. Um, JT Investor, Tom, I hope you had a great week and it's interesting to see how much opportunity is shaking out of the market dislocation given the continued strength in retail sales. I would appreciate your view on two consumer discretionary companies. One, GoPro, which seems to be making real progress on a turnaround and could be a potential for reopening play. And two, Under Armour, both stocks have been beaten down and supply chain is likely a factor. But if you think that will improve later this year, would you be a buyer today? Uh, I know these positions have storied histories with significant volatility, but the fundamentals seem compelling enough for me to ask you to not make a knee-jerk reaction to the names, but take a real look at the fundamentals and let us know if these stocks are still in your wheelhouse. Again, thanks for all your effort. I'm still adding to Baba, even though the fish feels like it's winning. Oh, yeah, that's right, reeling it in. Hope to see the momentum turn later this year. Best, JT. Uh, Okay, so um, I think um, Matt's... um, Adidas is probably a better play than Under Armour. As far as I'm concerned, Under Armour, once Kevin Plank left, it wasn't really interesting and probably never will be. Uh, Is it cheap at these levels? And could you buy it for a bounce? Probably. But um, let's see here. I'm just trying to pull up the data. I had it up. It's basically been a flat performer forever uh, since Kevin Plank left. I mean, when Kevin Plank was around, that guy was charismatic. He'd go out and, you know, close deals and bring in people you know, now um, Tom Brady's gone. So it's kind of like, I mean, look, they've gone from losing money the last five years. Now they're starting to make money. Their free cash flow is starting to pick up. So that's a good sign. The stock is down. So yeah, can you play it for a 25% bounce? Uh, Of course, Uh, but it's a trade. I I don't love this business long-term. I think Nike, you know, pretty much owns the space. That's not going to change. You know, I've got seven pairs of all birds i would never buy the stock in a million years um just because i know the odds are against them so what is this this is under armor so so could you you know it's dislocated here have the fundamentals changed much in the last uh 90 days i doubt it it's just uh you know russia slash market dislocation thing so look you're you're talking about it you know five or ten dollar bounce and that might be worth it um as far as GoPro, it's a commodity. Um, yes, I know they have the whole video thing and they still have their founder and that guy's charismatic and a seller. Uh, all right, I, I can't get this to work. So let me, I, 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 my, I, I'm gonna, I am gonna give you a knee jerk on GoPro. I'm gonna say pass, but um, I will take a quick look at the fundamentals here, and then we'll move right on. Um, because what you know, it's like the old song: anything I, anything you can do, I can do better. And that's what Apple's saying to Google to GoPro every day of the week: anything you can do, I can do better. And if you say, well, they have the holders, well, don't think Apple phones don't have holders that you can do extreme sports with as well. Um, Let's see. Maybe it's recovering. Maybe there's something I don't know that I don't know. Uh, Earnings per share. Yeah, this is massive. They were losing money. 
free cash flow. Okay, so look, this is kind of interesting. They're they're having a dramatic recovery here. Um, all right, well, um, we're going to take a look at this one this week. I don't think it's going to be like a multi-multi-bagger, but it definitely looks like the fundamentals are improving a lot faster than the stock price, and there's a story here. So we got to dig in and drill more. I think you might definitely be onto something here. Uh, I'd have to know what fundamentally changed in the business because historically it was a garbage business, but it looks like something's dramatically changed. I mean, the return on equity, return on invested capital, uh, revenue growth is recovering, earnings are recovering. So, uh, yeah, this this warrants further research. Uh, I'm going to just say, like, I'd put a tiny starter position on and start to drill down a lot more. Maybe I'll have more to say on it in the future. I don't love this type of business, but I love what's happening. So it's probably something related to the ecosystem for extreme sports people. And uh, and that might be worth a lot more than the device itself. Uh, and, I, and I'm betting they have some type of subscription thing going on. So uh, good find. JT Investor, uh, Carter, uh, go ahead and start to drill down on that one. Uh, ben, first name only. Two weeks ago, you wrote and said that the weekly commitments of traders reports, commercials are buying aggressively. Are they still doing so? Uh, ben, I put this in the article this morning, so we're going to go over that. Um, it's literally uh, in the article, so I put the charts out there. So I guess you haven't read that yet, but we'll go through it. Uh, JT's got another article. Sorry for asking a question. Sorry for asking a second question this week, but felt it was worth getting your views on potential impact of a sovereign default. It's been a long time since we experienced one of these and the contagion impact related to holders of Russian bonds or Russian issues by Russian companies that are going to default as their business suffer from sanctions and could use some instructions on uh, institutions to absorb losses which have a way of making an impact across the markets. How material is this risk and is it already baked in or should we anticipate some future shockwaves as the situation unfolds? Uh, this topic also reminds me to suggest you to check out Puerto Rico for your next family vacation. Lots of similar activities to Florida and families and Old San Juan is a beautiful town with rich history, beautiful sites to visit. The spike in tourism is obvious and a real benefit to the local economy. Best JT. Yeah, JT, uh, two things. Um, we have friends down there. My wife's good friends with Peter Schiff's wife, Lauren. So we do have to go down and visit them. They're at uh, Dorado and uh, been down to Puerto Rico before. We like it quite a bit. And uh, that is definitely good advice. Uh, may take you up on that. And second, uh, yeah, I mean, look, we had the, the Russian contagion in 1998 because long-term capital management was a hedge fund levered 100 to 1 on these bonds because, you know, as Buffett says, beware of geeks bearing formulas. Uh, a bunch of smart guys got together and said, you know, this is XYZ has never happened in the history of the history of the history. So we can lever up 100 to 1 and we'll be fine. It turned out that wasn't true. A lot of safeguards in place to avoid that with Dodd-Frank, with um, um, different prime brokerage requirements, disclosure requirements. But yeah, it would certainly have a ripple effect. It's certainly possible. Uh, the banks are obviously talking with the governments in terms of how far do they push them. You started to see the walk back from Yellen today. Maybe sanctions are not such a good idea because they hurt us too. So I think you're going to see a push and pull. But we're also going to talk about uh, a little bit more about um, the Russia-Ukraine situation because it seems like they're almost there. And I know that sounds simplistic, but I'll, I'll tell you why. Uh, the Russia, Russia actually put their asks on the table. And it seems odd that, that we're losing like 10 to 
I, I don't know exactly how many, but let's just assume thousands of lives already uh, when the asks are like a little aggressive, but not outside the, outside the realm of possibility where it's worth sacrificing tens of thousands of people uh, to resist it. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, Bill C., uh, what do you think will happen with U.S.-listed Chinese companies' ADRs that are not currently dual-listed on Hong Kong? I know you said you converted your BABA shares to Hong Kong, but it seems to me that U.S.-only Chinese ADRs without a Hong Kong counterpart are in a tough situation now under uh, holding, foreign counter- holding Foreign Company Accountable Act. Even if the company wanted to the shares uh, their financials with SEC auditors, Chinese law currently prohibits it. Correct. Um, most of these companies of any size are, uh, have already been filing for dual listings. So within a three year period, all the companies that matter will have a dual listing in Hong Kong and you'll be able to switch over. Um, uh, before then, my guess is something gets resolved between the governments before then and they come to some type of agreement, but it's the same businesses. It's just a different ticker. Obviously it would be preferable if they kept the ADR shares because the markets are deeper, the liquidity is greater, and you can get more institutional sponsorship in the U.S. exchanges. But um, institutions, for, for the vast majority, it doesn't matter whether they own Hong Kong or U.S. Um, ben, first name only, you mentioned that oil exploration and production stocks are now overvalued uh, and that you sold most of your remaining stocks over the last few weeks. The below zero hedge article says E&P stocks are over, undervalued. What, what is the author missing? Uh, thank you, Ben. So um, I, I believe that in a secular basis, that's correct. Um, and, and we would be looking to add back on a material pullback. I think, it, you know, it's funny. My, uh, I was having a conversation with an analyst today who said, you know, should we start shorting E&P stocks? And I said, you know, that's, that's actually a really good idea, except uh, my inclination is not to be doing any type of aggressive shorts before the yield curve inverts. And that's historically and cyclically my positioning uh, uh, with, with certain nuance. But by and large, until that yield curve inverts, uh, I... You know, people say, well, you're, you're, you're always pretty optimistic. I said, no, uh, actually, after the yield curve inverts, you know, four to six months out, the only things I'll be seeing through a prism is, is shorts. Uh, and I'll be as uh, aggressive shorting as I am aggressively buying businesses that are on sale right now while we're still in a bull market. And I don't worry about predicting it. I just do what the market tells me. And right now, the market tells me the bull market is still on. Uh, that could change shortly. Uh, let's say the curve inverts tomorrow, we'd probably have six to 18 months until the peak of the market. Uh, but we would start to be looking for strength to lighten up and we would be looking, uh, aggressively for really interesting shorts. Uh, we're nowhere near that. Uh, we're in buying mode now. Everyone's in selling mode. We're in buying mode. We think there's at least another leg up. And if they do the right thing with the balance sheet roll off, uh, could be, uh, they could extend the cycle another number of years like they did the stick save in 2000, uh, 1994, which we covered in last week's article of the week, which you can find on the website. So great questions this week. Let's move right along. Okay. Um, not sure what that was for. Okay. Two things I want to cover. Um, so just to clarify on Ben's thing, I have no idea why you would even be considering E&P stocks after triple and quadruple run-ups um, when there's so many things that are beaten down that you could buy and have 
double and triple baggers over the next few years, why pick up the last nickel in front of the steamroller? Sure, they could all push higher another 10 or 20% after being up to 100 and 300 and 400%. Um, I do, we have not sold any uh, gas names uh, or uh, servicers. So we think that the rig count is going to increase dramatically, which is going to help the servicers, and that's going to put supply on. Um, and we think that, that nat natural gas is secular, and we're just willing to suck up the volatility even if they come back uh, in coming weeks. But the EMP names that are purely on the price of gas and levered to the price of gas, uh, to, to the price of crude, um, I, I, I think that I think that's going to change. Yes, there's been underinvestment for five years. Yes, I get the secular story. Yes, I will participate in the secular story. But you know, bulls get bulls. Bulls make money. Bears make money. Pigs get slaughtered, and uh, you can't be too piggy at these levels. Right now, thirty uh, percent pullback on some of these names. Thirty-five percent pullback. Reload for the next three to five years. Yeah, I'm interested, but not, but not not now. Um, okay, so I want to talk about. Uh, two things. Number one, this is the executive order from uh, January 20th, 2021. This was the administration's move to revoking the 2019 permit for the Keystone XL pipeline, uh, which was granted in 2019. It's hereby revoked. Uh, and the second executive order, which was uh, Section 208, this was on January 27, 2021, oil and natural gas development on public lands and in offshore waters. To the extent consistent with applicable law, the Secretary of the Interior shall pause new oil and natural gas leases on public lands or in offshore waters pending completion of a comprehensive review and reconsideration of the federal oil and gas permitting and leasing practices in light of Secretary of the Interior's broad stewardship responsibilities over the public lands and in offshore waters, including potential climate and other impacts associated with oil and gas activities on public lands or in offshore waters. I can't believe people get paid $800 an hour to write this crap. But nonetheless, um, so, you know, Actions have consequences, and you know this. I, I think, I think it's pretty fair to say everyone wants to go green over time. I think that you know one of the things that they referenced in uh, one of these two, I think this first one, is uh, as a justification for cutting off the pipeline and as a justification for cutting off the leases, is. They, they made the statement, we will follow the science. And if they knew anything about science as it related to these two um, executive orders that were emotional versus logical, was that the amount of fossil fuels required to mine the precious metals and minerals that you need for electrification, for renewables, uh, you know, the plastics for windmills, the titanium, the, all the different factors that go into transitioning to green. So by cutting off fossil fuels, what they effectively did is they set back the, the green initiative by a decade. And uh, people say, well, you could turn on all the spigots today and you wouldn't catch up for what we've lost with Russia. That's true. But they were turned off 14 months ago. 
And that's unacceptable because it's a national security issue and it's put the world in this vulnerable state on the precipice of, of a potential World War, World War III, which would start if we actually put in the no-fly zone, which Zelensky has been trying to pressure and goad the East into doing. Um, and, and not to take anything away, I admire his courage, I admire his fortitude and his leadership, but uh, goading the rest of the world into World War III by putting in a red line like that uh, because we made these, um, uh, put these, these orders in place that put us in a vulnerable security position uh, is unacceptable. And I think the right thing to do is to say, desperate times call for desperate measures. You know, the, the Canadian prime minister said, uh, not the prime minister, he never says anything of value. I mean, uh, let's, okay. Uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a nice guy, but whatever. I, I don't agree with all his policies. But nonetheless, um, Canada says it could replace U.S. imports of Russian crude. All it would take is approval of the Keystone Pipeline, which is nearly done, by the way. They could get this thing done very, very quickly, and we could fill that gap very quickly. And that puts us in a position of strength and power versus weakness and dependency when we're, when we're negotiating with NATO, with Russia, et cetera. And I think, um, so, so what, the, what the Green Movement got wrong was the science behind what it's going to take to get fully uh, carbon neutral. And what it's going to take to get fully carbon neutral is a lot more fossil fuels uh, to fuel these projects and to make sure that we're sustainable until we can be, you know, have the vast majority um, uh, be green and be renewable, et cetera. So this was good intentioned, not based on science and extremely costly. Uh, and what's more important, leaving aside the war and talk about that, because that you can do at your local coffee shop and everyone's an expert, but uh, is the inflation numbers from today. And what you see here is everything you need to know about the policy. Uh, and that is that, yeah, you have 40-year high um, CPI, but it's all concentrated in two areas. One is improving and one is not. And the one that's not was a function of these two decisions, okay, which we as a majority voted for, by the way. I mean, it wasn't a secret. It wasn't like you know, this was put in place, like, surprise, uh, I, I ran on this and I gave you this. No, this was completely honest. This was, this was what we voted for, not thinking through uh, the, the second effects, the derivative effects of, um, you know, what higher prices would mean. Cutting off supply is higher prices. It funds people around the world that, uh, uh, you know, do things that are that are harmful to humanity. Not not all of them, but a good number of them. So, um, you know, if you look here, this that was voted for got this that was not voted for. And you look at the CPI here; it's all related to energy. I mean, all the other stuff, it, and 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 everything else has energy input costs. So um, if you were to, and this could be solved tomorrow. I mean, if, if the administration were to say tomorrow, we're, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. We're going to use the Keystone Pipeline as a bridge to uh, be able to get lower cost fossil fuels so we can get all the minerals we need and not be dependent on other people around the world to provide the minerals for our electrification, for our lithium, for all, all these different things. Um, 
and do it in that context, I think Russia would fold in a minute because they no longer had the leverage. Uh, they'd certainly give us a lot more. They'd certainly be a lot more uh, amenable at the, the talks that keep happening every two days. The good news is there are still talks that keep happening and failing, but keep happening uh, because of this. So uh, this immediate thing, this is something immediately that would, even though the pipeline's not going to be finished in 24 hours, it could be finished relatively quickly, uh, and then open the leases, whether companies choose to aggressively pursue them overnight or not, it sends the right message and the market starts to discount that. If you look at the forward curve, the market's already discounting. This is temporary, the backwardation. We covered that last week. But uh, this, this gives a lot more power. So um, these, this is what was responsible for the inflation numbers. All throughout this whole thing, it's been used cars and trucks and energy. Energy is still going up in the short term. Uh, the used car prices actually started to come down for the first time which is really exciting since August. So uh, that's moving in the right direction. That's moving in the wrong direction. Easy solution, at least giving us leverage to get this thing ended. And then, you know, then you'd have, uh, you know, uh, ceasefire. You'd have the Russian supply back online overnight. That would be a condition of uh, a negotiated settlement. So you'd have 400,000 barrels there. You'd have a few hundred thousand barrels uh, coming, you know, probably within 12 months from the Keystone Pipeline, if not sooner. Um, uh, you'd have the, the open threat of new leases being drilled so, so that uh, these people that are doing harm to humanity uh, wouldn't be so cocky at the table, like there's a particular cartel that told Biden to go pound sand. Um, and um, they would not have that leverage anymore. They didn't have that leverage in previous years. Uh, and, and, um, and, and by the way, the green movement made the most progress in those years because they had cheap access to fossil fuels. And even Elon Musk, who's done more to, for the green movement than anyone else in the world, says we need to drill and we need it now. So, um, so just reverse it. It's okay to make a mistake, but just reverse it. That's, it's very simple. Save the day. You've got uh, seven months to, till the midterm elections. This would be a great way to reverse the tide that has been rolling against uh, the, the group that put this in place. So, um, okay, leaving that aside, good news. Uh, Citigroup Economic Surprise Index turned positive uh, for the first time. You know, it, it was negative 60 in August of last year. It's now positive 60. That's very promising. You see these type of things after big cycles, uh, like the 2011 crash, which I, which I think is similar in many ways uh, to the COVID crash in terms of structurally. Then you get this huge rally out of it, and then you get this kind of uh, reversion, and then this sideways. So I think we're in relatively good situation. A lot's going to depend on Powell. This thing in Russia, Ukraine has ability to get resolved, but you got to come from a position of leverage. That said, um, okay, so, so that's good. The other thing that people have been putting out is, okay, this thing is going to roll over because earnings, global earnings revision are on a downward trajectory, okay? That happens at the beginning of every new cycle. So this is what happened during the great financial crisis. This is what happened during COVID. Then they shoot up off of a very low base. It's called base effects. That's what everyone forgets about this chart. Uh, and look, by 2012, uh, they were not only going negative, they were severely negative by 
That's the bad news. The good news is you rallied for another three consecutive years, 2013, 2014, until 2015 when you got your next correction. And I think we're in a similar situation that we've got some more gas in this tank provided the yield curve doesn't invert. So, um, so that's additional good news. Uh, second, uh, worry less about revisions, worry more about the actual estimates, which are still going up, albeit at a snail's pace, 225.78. So we're almost 226. We thought we'd have 230. My guess is we get there, uh, you know, maybe by mid-year. Uh, and 248 for next year. So it's not, not uh, you know, nothing to shake a stick at. That's not, not terrible. Um, okay, move through that. Um, Bank of America sees consumers spending more money on in-person activities. Clients devoted growing amounts to travel, restaurant, and gyms. Uh, millennials drove more of the growth than older consumers. So this is what we've been predicting for the last eight weeks, that there was going to be revenge travel, that um, um, the move from goods to services was going to help to alleviate some of the supply chain pressures. But we still have to get this solved. It's all in energy. It's all in energy and, um, and, it, and there's an easy fix because the perception is, the more, it doesn't matter if it takes six or 12 months to get online. It matters if the expectation of supply is real because it gives negotiating power. That brings another 400,000. The minute that's solved, the Iran thing's solved because Iran doesn't have leverage anymore. And that's one to 1.8. And then we're back to $60 and uh, you're at this perfect equilibrium for the energy companies, perfect equilibrium for the consumer, perfect equilibrium for the green movement, uh, perfect equilibrium for everything. Uh, and, and that's all it takes. And it just takes, just package it. I mean, these guys have PR people that they pay you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, just package it. Tell us how green, Keystone's gonna be green. It's, be, it's for the benefit of the green movement, which is true. Uh, if, you, if you look at the science of what you need in terms of fossil fuels to get to where you want to go in terms of green, uh, and, um, and you'll be off to the races. So that's that. Um, okay, moving right along. This was the key thing that came out this week. The Kremlin says military action will stop in a moment, quote unquote, if Ukraine meets these three conditions. So here are the conditions. Number one, we really are finishing the demilitarization of Ukraine. We will finish it. But the main thing is that Ukraine ceases its military action. They should stop their military action and then no one will shoot. Okay, that's kind of like saying, trust me, you know, put your gun down and then I'll put mine down. I, that one's unrealistic. Second one, they should make amendments to the Constitution according to which Ukraine would reject any claims to enter any bloc. This is possible only by making changes to the Constitution. Okay, so they're saying withdraw your application for NATO, which is what this has largely been about since day one. Instead, we're having tens of thousands of people. NATO's not accepting them. So I don't know how long it takes for you to um, apply to something and they don't accept you where you realize your application was rejected. Uh, you know, this happens in social clubs and golf clubs all over the country. Like, you know, if you don't get a call back in 90, in 90 days, you're probably not getting in. Like, you know, get with the program. So, uh, and then three, they should recognize that Crimea is Russian territory and that they need to recognize that Donetsk and Lugansk are independent states, which have been uh, occupied by Russian separatists uh, for some time. 
and that's it. War will stop in a moment. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't know that they're going to recognize Crimea as a Russian territory or, or not. I think that, you know, Donetsk and Lugansk gives, gives uh, Putin a win. It's already occupied by Russian separatists. Maybe they get somewhere there. Maybe they don't. But this thing, maybe they don't have to give that, but they say, we won't give you that, but we'll withdraw our rejected application to NATO because we weren't getting in anyway. Drop your guns. Uh, I think given the current price of oil, Putin does not have to take that uh, and go home with a win. I think if we were to announce the Keystone Pipeline uh, um, completion, even though it takes a a little while, I think that would give a huge leverage. And so after all the lives and the money lost, Putin's got to come home with a win. Uh, And he would just say, we got the win. They withdrew from NATO uh, and it was worth it. And they they do their parade in the city and call it a day, even though they lost tons of money and tons of people. Uh, And Ukraine, you know, they withdraw an application from a club they were never getting into to start with. So they don't really lose anything. As far as their separate re- separatist regions, they never really had control over them. Um, so that, that, that one's the negotiating point. And it depends if we're coming from strength or weakness. Right now we're coming from weakness. So Putin's asking for everything he wants. Um, and that, that's going to be the inflection there. Uh, the one thing I said a few weeks ago was either this is resolved in a negotiated settlement or the market becomes conditioned to it. Uh, almost like in Afghanistan, where it's just going on in the background. Now, this is obviously has a different context, but you're starting to see a little bit of uh, a conditioning to it. And that puts Ukraine in a weaker situation. The longer it takes to get resolved, the longer they take to pull their application from NATO, uh, the less they're going to get and the more they're going to lose. That's just the nature of, you know, it's David against Goliath and David's winning, uh, which is great. Uh, and David's getting more weapons, so David's becoming, you know, much bigger David, which which is great. That gives him a little little bit more power. Uh, but I, I think there's, I think you saw a little piece of it yesterday, what the playbook's going to look like when you get some movement on one of these three asks that they can both live with. And, uh, and, and, uh, and you did see a little bit of that. Yesterday, in a nod to Russia, Ukraine says no longer insisting on NATO membership. But they haven't given up their application yet. He hasn't given up his leverage yet. But um, that was what the first, you know, many lives were lost over. So now he's walked that back. And um, and then the question will be Donetsk and Lugansk. And, uh, you know, but, but pulling us into a no-fly zone, I think that's, you know, very high risk, low reward. Uh, I think we could have more leverage by utilizing the vast resources that we have and, and not making Russia's measly 400,000 barrels relevant anymore. Just we could we could sanction them into oblivion and we don't need them and the world doesn't need them. Uh, and then they're toast. Uh, but we don't have that power and uh, OPEC has stood by them and uh, and that's what it is. Moving on to China. OK, so today the Chinese stocks had a big decline uh in the morning it was like jd reported earnings and we thought you know i was like ah they're down because jd earnings but jd grew revenues by 23 percent their earnings were good so faber came out uh from cnbc big decline in jd and alibaba appears related to naming of the first five chinese adrs by the sec in the three-year delisting process establishing the foreign companies how uh holding foreign companies accountable act which requires 
mainly China-based registrants to disclose government control and influence, uh, as well as uh, financials. So the market had, uh, so I put this note out, the market had 12 months of notice to swap out for Hong Kong shares. We've been covering that for the last three months. Uh, now, now they get another 36 months uh, on top of it, okay? Uh, if and when this is resolved in the U.S., we can swap back to uh, BABA shares or just continue to hold the 9988 uh, in Hong Kong. Same business, new ticker. So nothing in the sell-off today had anything to do with the underlying business, which is the good news. The bad news is people panic because uh, there was a period under Trump where China Mobile got delisted and people who held it got nothing because they didn't have a fungible listing in Hong Kong. Uh, so I think that's what people are really worried about. Uh, and also the deeper markets is, is a benefit. There's no question you get a higher multiple, uh, but the multiple is so low at this point, it's like, you know, the downside is pretty well baked in. So what is interesting about today is this was known and feared for a considerable amount of time. Uh, and now it's being digested. So it has been sell the rumor for a number of months. Now, now we're going to see if we get a buy the news in coming days after this is digested and people say, wait, so the fundamentals of all these businesses are the same. Uh, the only risk is that I have to change the ticker uh, and these businesses are still growing in leaps and bounds. And we're going to cover what leaps and bounds mean specifically uh, today. Uh, but the whipped cream on the <laughs> you know what uh, is that... Uh, Alibaba was the least bad of the whole group. <laughs> JD down 16%, etc. Even better than the KWeb, which is the ETF, uh, etc. So uh, the whole group was down. It wasn't related to any one stock. And I think it's uh, more a uh, sell the rumor and let's see if we get it by the news. Now, um, a lovely reporter from Bloomberg named Coco reached out this morning about Alibaba. And she said, um, she had a few questions um, about the cloud business. And I want to cover a couple of key things here just to help everyone understand knowing what you own and the business underlying business. So first off, uh, global market of the cloud business is expected to grow to just under a trillion dollars by 2026. It's at 445 billion today. So that's 16.3% CAGR uh, from now to 2026. And um, Alibaba, the business itself, the all-encompassing business, uh, where is that? Okay, so the, the business itself is going to grow 32% over the next two years, and earnings are going to grow by 30.7% over the next two years. Uh, so you have a business that's going to be a third larger than it is today, and um, and you're paying 2014 prices. Uh, this just gives you a visual of that. Um, so both earnings and revenues are going to grow by more by about a third. And uh, cloud services, if you look at it in the context as a first mover in China, uh, and you see what's happened to uh, Amazon Web Services was the first mover, and you can look at all this data, you can have a sense of the runway that Alibaba Cloud Services has. Uh, which is only 8.5% of Alibaba's total revenue right now. Huge runway. Um, and Alibaba estimates cloud, cloud computing is going to be $158 billion in China alone by 2025. Uh, and they own, they've gone from 31% share in 2020 to 38% share now. So they're increasing market share in a business that will probably be up 4x 
uh, on the whole. So if they have 4X of 600 million, you know, 40% of six, uh, 600 billion rather, that alone is going to be bigger than the whole business and the margins are going to be much bigger and it's going to be the AWS story. So they're just way behind on the digitization in China. They will catch up and China's the uh, first mover, just like Amazon Web Services was in the US. And they're also going to be the Amazon Web Services of, uh, of, um, of Southeast Asia. So uh, now here's what came to me. And I thought this was brilliant because she said, I know you have a big position. I said, yes, it's one of our two largest positions. Um, she said, um, so I said, you know, given what happened today, the holders of Alibaba in recent months have gone through a massive biblical test of faith as the government has cracked down on the sector. It brings to mind the story of Job from the Bible, whose faith was tested. And during this test, Job lost his 10 children, all of his wealth and his health. So you can't ask for anything worse than that. Now, through the turmoil, he kept his faith and was ultimately rewarded. Now, how does the story end? Well, the story ends that with Job receiving not only 100% of his wealth back, but a multiplication of that wealth by several fold, which I think is the story going to be with Alibaba in the next couple of years, uh, with intrinsic value closer to 300 than 100. Uh, and he not only got his wealth in restored and multiplied several fold, he got another 10 children and he lived for another 140 years. Now I'll take the 140 years over the triple in Baba, but both would be sweet. Uh, and, uh, and we believe that patient and faithful shareholders of Alibaba who understand the long-term intrinsic value of the underlying businesses will likewise be restored and multiply their wealth several fold in coming years. So we'll see if that makes Bloomberg or not, but I thought that was a reasonable way to frame it. Um, okay. Now, I made a couple other points with her. Uh, we've been adding at the margins into weakness, bringing our basis down. We follow management's lead by watching what they say, but more importantly, what they do. Quote unquote from management, our current share price does not fairly reflect the value of the company. At current price levels, we plan on continuing our share repurchases. For the nine months ended December 2021, we purchased approximately 42.2 million of our ADS for about 7.7 .7 billion US dollars, representing 51% of our $15 billion share repurchase program. So they're gonna be in the market doing more. Um, okay. Uh, what is the importance of AliCloud to Baba in your opinion? I said Alibaba is to, AliCloud is to Alibaba as AWS is to Amazon. It will drive future growth and profitability moving forward. China's cloud market will be 1 trillion RMB by 2025. AliCloud currently commands 38% of the China market alone, up from 31% in 2020. Public cloud services will grow 4x. It's 2020 size by 2025 at a 33% CAGR in China. By 2025, spending on public cloud services will grow to 19.7% of total IT spend in China, up from 6.8% in 2020. Uh, US, which is further along in the curve, is expected to hit 31.8% of spend by 2025, signaling the vast runway for cloud spent in China over the coming decade. Alibaba is positioned to claim significant share as first mover, just as AWS has done stateside. Okay, I'm sure you've noticed AliCloud's growth revenue missed analyst forecast in December quarter. Although Alibaba management said the slowdown will fade away in coming quarters, some analysts think otherwise. In fact, they expect AliCloud's market share in China public cloud market to continue sliding. What's your reading for AliCloud business outlook and why? 
if you happen to share the same concern, has it affected your decision to invest in Alibaba in any way? Um, okay, the December quarter decelerated, deceleration was due to three factors. This is my response. Number one, the lagged impact of the education sector shut down over the summer. Number two, the difficulty of business development in a zero COVID environment that limited cloud sales and implementation efforts. We are pleased to see management maintain their revenue guidance despite the temporary deceleration. And three, the COVID related shutdown slowdown in China GDP, which fell to 4% and retail sales fell to 3% in the quarter. 20% revenue growth for the cloud was concentrated uh, in the financial and telecom sector and hurt by the crackdown in online education and gaming sectors that were hit hard by the summer government crackdown. Excluding their top client being implemented, uh, being impacted by the crackdown, growth would have been 29%. AliCloud is rapidly expanding outside the internet sector so as to be insulated from further crackdowns in the future. 52% is now non-internet sectors. Okay, last question. Some called Alibaba the Amazon of China. Given the company is strong on both e-commerce and cloud computing, similar to the Silicon Valley giant, is that in line with your view? Do you think Alibaba could still become the Amazon of China under current circumstances? I think Alibaba is the Amazon of China and will become the Amazon of Southeast Asia in coming years. The user growth rate outside of China, plus 5.6% last quarter, 16 million users gained alone, uh, has been faster than within its borders, which was 2.73%, or a gain of 26 million users. Uh, international orders grew by 25% year-on-year and stickiness of customers remained elevated at 86%, which speaks to the value proposition for the users. Trading at below, probably a, it's probably now 11 times forward earnings, represents a rare opportunity to buy one of the highest quality large cap companies in the world at a dramatic discount to intrinsic value. Regulatory headwinds will normalize once again, just as they do following every crackdown, which happen every three to five years. Opportunity in this business is when high quality businesses become temporarily misappraised due to exogenous events. Alibaba fits that bill to a T. So, um, so that's that. Um, uh, Andrew Barry put out an article on Bloomberg, why Alibaba is the cheapest company in the world outside Russia. That mimics Bill Miller's comments last week when he was adding to his position. Howard Marks uh, calls China market a buy in Oak Tree WeChat debut. Uh, that was last week. Uh, so he's another deep value guy. And then yesterday, when all these stocks were up 6% instead of being down 10%, um, it was very interesting. They were down midday. Uh, China stocks got a dip as uh, dip buyers helped halt a five-day losing streak. The shares rollercoasted during the Asia trading day, uh, rose by 6%. Uh, so this was the jump. The rally in U.S. hours follows a volatile day in Asia for shares listed in Hong Kong and China. Uh, but here's what's interesting. The rebound, quote, has led to speculation that the Chinese authorities moved in to support their stock market, said Matt Maley, chief market strategy at uh, Miller Tabak and Company. This has given traders the kind of confidence they need to buy the China ADRs, at least for a short-term trade. And I think we're going to see more of that because this week was the China National China People's Congress, not the China National Congress. China People's Congress, where they lay out their economic plan for the year, they targeted 5.5% GDP, which was above expectations for 5%. So they're going to, and people are skeptical they can do that. So they're going to really have to juice the stimulus in a massive way uh, in the next six months to get that done before the end of the year. The other thing we saw is they're loosening up policies in line with that. China supports tech firm US IPO revival, signaling end to freeze. Uh, there's a, a a Chinese tech company now going public on the U.S. stock exchange um, that's homegrown. 
that the government gave the nod to, uh, and Chinese Securities Regulatory Commission told banks that it would permit some U.S. listings by companies that meet certain criteria, and that's exactly what's happening. So the game is back on here, albeit it's the first one in a while, but that sig that's a big signal, which has been clouded by the uh, overhang of the uh, Russia-Ukraine because the riskiest stocks get sold first. That's emerging markets. China's the biggest weight, yada, yada, yada. Uh, China to set up financial stability funds, steady home prices. Uh, we'll also use market-based ways to diffuse risk. City-specific measures will be used amid real estate woes. So they're, they're, they're throwing the kitchen sink at it. China reassures role of venture capitalists after tech crackdown. They're saying, please don't, don't leave with your money. Our Chinese companies are good. We'll stop bothering you is basically the message there. Complete about face. China seeks to ease simmering social issues in political year. Li Kuiquang pledges to tackle issues such as human trafficking. Earmarks more money for law enforcement. Uh, basically, they want to suppress riots and they want to get the economy going before the riots get out of control is a better way to frame that. Uh, and then finally, China outlines plan to stabilize economy uh, in crucial year for Xi. China calls for heavy government spending and lending as, it, as its leaders seek to project confidence in the face of global uncertainty over the pandemic and war in Ukraine. So they laid out their whole plan this week and, uh, and we're going to see a continued implementation, implementation which started in November. And finally, uh, China signals more policy support with 5.5% growth target. Government vows to step up monetary policy implementation. Economists see more rate cuts, fiscal spending in the cards. So these are going to be catalysts moving forward. We all know China is the biggest weight in, in, uh, in a lot of these indices or in the top few weights. And they'll be the biggest beneficiary once the smoke clears. Uh, this was JD's revenue rises 23% in defiance of China's consumption slowdown. So it just shows there's pent up demand here. The stimulus is starting to kick in. We saw it in some economic numbers. And here's what's very important. This is the K-Web. This is all these Chinese internet stocks, you know, Alibaba and JD and Tencent are obviously the biggest three weights. <clears throat> but here's what's been happening. Since the crackdown, the price of this has been in a downtrend. Okay, so the price has been going lower. But the accumulation distribution line has been in an uptrend. So what does that mean? Well, let's take a look at the definition. Okay, so this is from Investopedia. The advanced decline line is used to help assess price trends and potentially spot forthcoming reversals. If a securities price is in a downtrend while the advanced decline line is in an uptrend, then the indicator shows there may be buying pressure and the securities price may reverse to the upside. Conversely, if a securities price is in an uptrend while the advanced decline is in a downtrend, then the indicators show there may be selling pressure or higher distribution that warns price may be due for a decline. So here it is, securities price in a downtrend while the advanced decline line is in an uptrend shows there may be buying pressure and the securities price may reverse to the upside. And if you look at K-Web inflows, which is the China internet uh, ETF, uh, they've, been, they've been going up this month. So I think that this could have been the final um, flush. Um, we, we'll see. This certainly looks like the sell the rumor by the news. Like everything that was feared by U.S. investors came to pass today. They put that out. And uh, now it's digested and they realize, wait, nothing, nothing changed for the business? Okay, so I have to change tickers in 36 months or less? Okay, I can live with that. Some will just sell out, like, oh, how do I own Hong Kong stocks? But they're not a material part of the ownership anyway, ownership, so it's, it's, it's a non-issue. Now, let's move along. Um, okay, this is a quote from Peter Lynch. 
But my system for over 30 years has been this, quote, when stocks are attractive, you buy them. Sure, they can go lower. I've bought stocks at $12 that went to $2, but then later went to $30. That's Peter Lynch, uh, one of the greats. Now, on Tuesday, I gave this presentation at The Money Show. And I went through, and I, again, I'd strongly urge you just go to the article of the week and click, click here. You can watch it directly on The Money Show or, or on the YouTube. Watch the whole thing. I go through five or six uh, big trades that I've done over the last few years and how, what was the thesis going into them, what changed when they moved against us, how did we respond, uh, and what, what ultimately happened. And the one I want to focus on, because this is the one that really, you know, I went out publicly with, it went against me materially, uh, everyone bailed, and why we stuck with it. So uh, we started buying range resources in 2018 in the $12 range right here. Okay, the stock was down 90% from, you know, $92 and change, some 90%. And, um, and, and it was very cheap relative to its book value and reserves. At the year end 2013, up here, uh, when the stock was, you know, in the 90s, um, the stock was trading at 175% of their SEC PV10, which is 10 years approved reserves that they have to report in their filings. Uh, that's where it traded. At the time we initiated this position, so it was trading at a, for simplicity's sake, it was trading at 175% of, call it liquidation value, um, at, in 2013 when it was up in the 90s. When we bought it around 12, it was trading at 41%. So it was trading at a, some 60% discount to quote unquote liquidation value. <clears throat> but that's just of the 10-year proven reserves. So our thesis was that either liquidating the business or spinning off the unproved reserves because they had another few decades worth um, uh, uh, of reserves that were what they call unproved, which means they weren't reported on the balance sheet and which we valued at somewhere between 40 and $60. Uh, so our thesis was like, let's just liquidate it or spin off the unproved reserves and monetize it. Uh, the book value, the proved reserves alone was uh, $23 a share. We were buying at 12. We had a margin of safety. The unbooked acreage we thought was worth another 40. Uh, and uh, sure enough, the market agreed with us temporarily in the short term. Stock went from 11 to $18 very quickly in you know, less than a year, nine months. We thought we were brilliant. And then you know, uh, it rolled over with some of the glut and then COVID put it in the grave. It got all the way down to $1.61. Now, during this period, nothing changed from the fact that it still had $23 approved reserves and probably another $40 plus of unproved reserves. So in our estimate, the stock was worth $40 to $60. We'd bought it at 12 and now it was down you know, below two uh, and we bought the hell out of it uh, down. And the reason, by the way, so it's like, oh, you bought it, but how did you have the cash in the middle of COVID? And the reason we had the cash in the middle of the COVID is because the yield curve had inverted in the summer of 2019. And when the yield curve inverts and the market tells me what to do, I look for reasons to get to cash. So we had a ton of cash by the time COVID hit because we knew six months or so after, between six to 18 months after an inversion, you get a peak in the market. So everything that was running on strength, we were building up cash. 
we had cash to do that. We brought our basis down all the way down to one four, $4.11 from originally around 12. That's how much stock we bought down there. So um, we knew what we owned. So we used the volatility buy, to buy down. Understanding the quality of what we owned did not create fear when the share prices fell. Uh, to date, our stock has returned six times our money. It's now seven times because I think it closed close to $28 today, up from four. Uh, and we, we, you know, we'll start peeling off more materially in the 40s. And uh, we think this could run a lot more over the next three to five years. We do think it's a secular play on, on gas. Uh, there are others like it, Comstock Resources. We have a position uh, and those are just getting started. But our ability to understand what we own allows for logical decisions that are not ruled by fear. Okay, then we went into the COVID stuff and everything else. But we go 